According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth, once again, comes in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3. We're approaching the end of the chapter, and uh, we'll see if we can get through today. we got today, we got next week. What do we have? Today and next week. And then we've got a, a couple of weeks off for uh, the Ukraine trip. So keep that in your prayers. It would make for a nice break, wouldn't it, if we could wrap up chapter 3 and then have a break and then come back for chapter 4. Um, in any event, before we get started, let's take time for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to bless our thinking and to set aside distractions, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for truth. We thank you that you are the God of truth, that we are your children in truth, Father. And I just thank you that we can come together this morning to study, to show ourselves approved, bless our time together, hedge us about, protect us, hinder anyone that would want to come in here and stop what we're doing. Father, uh, just thank you for being faithful. In Christ's name I do pray. Amen. All right, we are dealing with points 9 and 10, which are the last two points in our outline. And I think, did we get through all of nine last week? Let's see. Uh, We were looking at abiding in God's wisdom, which provides a life of personal stability. That was main point eight. Abiding in God's wisdom provides a life of personal stability. And uh, not only do we have the stability that's referenced here in Proverbs 3, but we also have 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, and James 1, verses uh, 6 through 8. And uh, passages that I find very convicting passages that I've used in uh, ministry uh, in shepherding uh, unstable believers, to ask unstable believers. And I know there's shock on your face. There would never be unstable believers at Austin Bible Church. Well, opportunities that arrive here and there and uh, for folks, new folks. No, I'm just teasing. Uh, different folks from time to time. They, they, have a, they, have a, they go through a rough season. They go through a period and I don't care if they're new, if they're old, if, if uh, they've been under teaching for a while. We all can get away from the right kind of thinking. We all can get away from the uh, realities of stability as God's Word provides it for us. And so these are passages that have been, uh, and then we could have more. These are just really off the top of my head. They're kind of favorites, as, as it were. And uh, for stability, we don't want to be tossed to and fro. We aren't going to be, we want to be grounded. And that's, uh, that is so vital, I think, for the church age. We moved on from there into main point nine. The life of wisdom contains several thou shalt nots. And when you read through the verses here in 27 through 31, you have do not, do not, do not, do not, do not. And so I simply absconded with the King James Elizabethan English from the Ten Commandments um, and, and imported it here, if you don't mind, uh, with the thou shalt nots. Thou shalt not withhold good from those to whom it is due those to whom it is due. And this is the first of the thou shalt nots. And um, we talked about this a week ago. There's, there's, it's a pretty broad commandment. It's a pretty generic commandment. And, and uh, it might be that folks want more specificity. Uh, well, what do you mean by good? And, and what do you mean by those to whom it is due? And, and, and we want to try to limit it, like the uh, disciples in Christ's day wanted to try to limit you know, forgiveness. Is it just you know, seven times? 
and and we we're, we want to know the fine print. Well, who's my neighbor? You know, they would ask Jesus. Well, who's my neighbor? That's kind of broad, and and that's exactly right. It is broad, and those to whom it is due could be anybody. We are to do good to all men, especially to believers, but not only believers. All right, and so I think when you take Proverbs three twenty seven. And you connect it to Romans 13, 7 and Galatians 6, 10. You've got a pretty broad commandment there that says, if it's in your power to do it and you withhold it, why are you withholding it? For what reason? What is the motivation behind not doing good when <clears throat> Scripture commands you not to withhold good from those to whom it is due? You say, well, they don't deserve it. <laughs> None of us do. Um, all right. This goes along pretty well with not delaying. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it to you. That's kind of the flip side of the first one. They, they go hand in hand. Thou shall not delay to do the right thing. So you don't want to withhold the right thing, and then you don't want to delay the right thing, because delaying the right thing is simply a step along the way of, of denying the right thing. Okay, It's, a, it's kind of a weasel way around it. Uh, so do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. You have it with you. You could pay him back, whatever it is, assuming that, you know, whatever it is. Um, you have it with you, but you act like you don't. And you say, oh man, I left my wallet in my other jeans, you know, or whatever. And then and you lying dog, you've got it with you. You just don't want to pay. And, and you say you don't. You say you don't. And uh, the truth is that you do. Now, why is the purpose for the delaying? Again, you're hoping that they're not going to come back. You know, eventually they're going to forget or they're going to give up or you know, eventually they'll just not come back. Or if you tell 20 people to come back tomorrow, maybe only 18 of them do. And so then you finally pay off the 18 that do and then you've, you've scored whatever kind of boost you think you've scored by not paying back the two that didn't come back or what have you. So the point being, we want to do the right thing. We want to do it when we have the opportunity to do it. We don't want to delay. We don't want to procrastinate and say, come back tomorrow. It's not tomorrow's test, it's today's test. We want to have victory in today's test so that we are equipped to handle tomorrow's test. Other passages that go along with Proverbs 3.28 include Leviticus 19.13, Deuteronomy 24. There's a whole passage there, verses 12 through 15. Don't withhold the wages from a man. If he's worked for you, pay him. Uh, if he's And, and uh, other references too about uh, security. If you've taken his cloak for security, then give it back before, before nightfall. He's going to be cold tonight. Uh, James 5.4 in, uh, in the New Testament. All right, point C, thou shalt not devise harm against your neighbor. Point C, thou shalt not devise harm against your neighbor. And this comes in verse 29. Do not devise harm against your neighbor. <laughs> How about that? While he lives securely beside you. And you know, I didn't talk about this as much, but it struck me that some some Christians find... Um, kind of a, an escapism in, in make-believe, in their imagination, in, 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 a, in a fantasy realm. And they would never dream of, of actually killing the person, but, but they kind of enjoy the, 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 the daydreaming of thinking of ways they, they might do it if they could, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, I wouldn't really do that, but if I was the kind of person who would do that, um, this is maybe how I might do it, you know? And you, and you kind of create a scenario in your mind, and you, you kind of... You re, maybe refresh some old Wile E. Coyote cartoons of things that you could do with, with uh, dynamite and, and uh, rockets and, and pits and things. And I mean, it's all, it's all fantasy life anyway, so as long as you're just make-believing whatever, 
You know, you might drop a piano on their head or, or something. The thing is, though, if you're devising harm against your neighbor, it is not a far step from the, the, the mental life to the, the life. And if, if, if you're doing this again and again and again, you find that your mind is, is operating in circles of, of darkness, why is that? Why is that? And why does that give you a sense of enjoyment? So anyway, I didn't address it last week quite that way in terms of devising harm. Um, but I think that is uh, an application we could we could pull out of verse 29. All right, there's two more. Thou shalt not contend with a man without cause. Not contend with a man without cause if he's done you no harm. And I think uh, here too is, is an element where just call it a, a, a personality issue or whatever. There's just some people, and, and by their own nature, they, they want to argue. You know, and it doesn't matter what it is. You tell them the sky is blue, and then they just have a personality that says, no, it's not, you know, or whatever. And they want to, what, for whatever reason. And you ask, well, really? Sometimes you can tweak them. You, give, you know that they're argumentative. You know they're going to deliberately take the other side of, a, of an argument. So you, you set them up, and you immediately take the, the wrong side of the argument on purpose so that they can take the right side. And then you could say, well, that's what I wanted to say in the first place. <laughs> and uh, things like that. All right. Do not contend with a man without cause. Now, there is a cause, and that's the point. When there is a time to contend, there is a time that it is right to contend, and we need to understand the difference. And uh, if he has done you harm, if, he, if you have a cause, then depending on what he's done and what you know, the damage is and whatnot, then uh, we have choices to make in our own applications. But just simply to contend without cause, let's not be the source of it, all right? Uh, so far as it depends on you, live in peace with all men. You can't control what their attitude is, but so long as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Finally then, do not envy a man of violence. The final of the thou shalt nots in verse 31. To envy a man of violence and choose any of his ways. And I think... Likewise, there's the progression here from the fantasy life to the to the decision. And then if you're all you're doing is just envying it, if all you're doing is just looking and saying, Man, I wish I could do that, or wow, you know, they seem to have it made, and man, you know, and if there's something about that, if there's something about that that's causing you to have a, a lust issue, <laughs> that's a problem. And then when you decide, you know what? I'm gonna do it. And you just throw it all away and decide to walk that path. Um, well, it's because you've been thinking about it for a while. It didn't just happen overnight. You let yourself dwell on it for so long that it's now consumed you in your thinking. And none of that qualifies under Philippians 4, 8. Anyway, why are you letting your mind dwell on those things? Philippians t- tells us what to let your mind dwell on. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is honorable. If there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. All right? So, we have uh, the thou shalt not that happens there, all right? Which takes us to point 10. The chapter concludes with a declaration of fundamental contrast. The chapter concludes with a declaration of fundamental contrast. And here we have verses 32 through 35. Say, Dan, or Radley? Thanks. All right. Chapter concludes with a declaration of fundamental contrasts. 32 through 35, 4, here's the explanation. After going through all the thou shalt nots, 
We have all this list of thou shalt nots in verses 27 through 31, and then it doesn't end with because I say so. All right? It doesn't just end with because I'm God and you're not, and you obey me, and I'm a meanie, and I don't want you to do all these things. It's it's not simply um, because I say so. There is an explanation. And the explanation gives the rationale. And the rationale helps to describe uh, principles behind all of the thou shalt's and thou shalt nots and the things that come in this passage. So we have the explanation for. For, you understand, or by way of explanation or in, in summary, the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. The devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. Now that's an explanation, that's a summary statement, or that's just a, a general truth that forms the backdrop or forms the mindset behind all those lists of thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Alright, it goes on. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Again, it's a contrast. It's a contrast that's laying out two sides. Which way shall you go? Which road shall you take? And this is the backdrop for all of those thou shalt not commands that preceded. Verse 34, though he scoffs at the uh, at scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's quoted a couple times in the New Testament. It's very familiar to us from the New Testament quote, not so much from the Uh, from the book of Proverbs. And then finally, the wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. And uh, in the process of this, in this declaration of fundamental contrast, we actually have here introduced, we have uh, a pattern for things that we're going to see repeated later on in the book of Proverbs. In fact, the bulk of Proverbs contains dice ditches where things are contrasted, the way of righteous, the way of the wicked, uh, the walk of wisdom, the walk of the fool, things like that. The bulk of Proverbs uh, is formed by virtue of such uh, fundamental contrast. So I'm glad that we see them here in uh, in these verses. All right, so let's start with the devious. The devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. And here's one that probably, and it may be, if we do the deepest enough study here, then it kind of explains everything else. <laughs> so let's start with this. The subpoint A, the fundamental contrast between the abomination and the intimate. This is the fundamental contrast between the abomination and the intimate. That's what we want to get here in subpoint A. There's a couple of things that are working in this verse in the parallel. There's the devious and the upright. All right, the devious and the upright. But how are those two different people related to the Lord? Well, on the one hand, you've got an abomination, and on the other hand, you've got the intimate. And so you can contrast this either way. If you want to do a contrast between devious and and upright, we could do that. But I think the effect of this is uh, really what's more powerful in, in, uh, in not only here but elsewhere, is the contrast between the abomination and the intimate. That's what jumps out. And that's what uh, I think is um, largely lost in our culture. Uh, I think uh, it's uh, if, you, if you even use the word abomination, then uh, you're going to be hated for being a hater. 
Uh, you're going to be uh, accused of, of all kinds of things. Because in under pluralism, under um, relativism, uh, there's no such thing as an abomination. It's just, you know, it's good for me, it's good for you, and, and how dare you, how judgmental, how, how hateful, how wrong for you to call anything an abomination. Well, you're not. God does. God's calling it an abomination. And if you agree with God in what he's revealed in the scripture, then you're going to be accused of, of hate crimes. You're going to be accused of hating. And as if homosexuality is the only thing that's described as an abomination. That is not true. There is much that's described as an abomination and, and uh, beyond homosexuality. And uh, if we, we better be clear on that. And we don't want to just be picking on one particular sin or one category of sins and, and then winking at other things. Okay? Uh, there's no winking around here. <laughs> I, want you to know, I want you to know that. I preach against every sin I know about in, in, in all 66 books. Okay? All 1,189 chapters. I have never once excused any heterosexual um, fornication. Not one time have I ever uh, uh, gave permission. I've never gave anybody permission to have a mistress on the side because of whatever. I've been accused of this. I have been accused of hating homosexuals and permitting for heterosexual mistresses in the church. All right, well... Again, I go back to my question from Sunday. What are you smoking? I don't, <laughs> you know, are you on drugs? I have never once permitted any kind of sin. All right. So we have a fundamental contrast between the abomination and the intimate. The vocabulary for abomination is tohmebah. If you want to do more studies on that, you can have a ton of fun with it. Not really. There's 112 Old Testament uses. 112, and it'll take a while, and uh, although it speeds up if you use the software to bring the verse list up. Tokneva, T-O-W, and then the left slanted apostrophe. E-B-A-H, Tokneva, number 8441 is a strong concordance number. And the thing, the, the basic, the the fundamental concept you want to understand underneath abomination, here Here's this, the, the main sense of abomination. That, that, that might be helpful because we've lost that too, right? Like when you think propitiation, what, what, what should you think? Word association. If I say propitiation, you should come back with satisfied or satisfaction, right? Okay, the thing with abomination, you want to think of revulsion, revulsion. The idea of an abomination is that you are so, it is so uh, compulsively, uh, hideous, that you are under a revulsion. You want to push it far from you. An abomination is a revulsion, a, comp- a compelling impulse to drive something far from one's presence. That's what abomination is all about. That's what Tolkien is about. That's what the cognate verbs and other forms are about. The concept behind it is revulsion. You are personally offended, and worse than offended. You are um, revulsed. Is that a term? <laughs> okay. You are experiencing a subjective revulsion. It's a disgust. That's a term. It's a disgust. And, it's, it's, and there are many things that will cause that. And, and we can illustrate this in many ways. But, I mean, anything that, that is so repulsive that, that you're just disgusted by it, and the last thing you want to do is embrace it. The last thing you want to do is, is, is obtain more of it. Or, or center it, you know, center your life in the midst of it. 
You want to push it away. That's what then makes it the contrast with the intimate. Because the intimate, in this Hebrew expression, is, uh, the, the term is sowed, C-O-W-D, sowed. And I use C only because I want to distinguish the samek from the seen and the sheen. And it's, it's, a, it's a soft C sound, sowed. 5475. And sowed is just the opposite. Sowed is the intimacy. Sowed are the ones that you bring closest to you, your inner circle, your, your intimate counselors, okay? The people that you can talk to about anything because there's no judgment, no condemnation. You have, you have intimacy, you have familiarity. And this is the contrast. Because in the things of the Lord, He wants us to be intimate. God wants us to be intimate with Him. He wants to be intimate with us. The Father wants to share the love of His Son. He wants us to have the love of His Son. And so we should have this sowed. We should have this companionship, this intimacy. And that's the opposite from the revulsion, from the abomination. Just drive it far away. I want nothing to do with it. I don't want to look it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to smell it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know about it. Because it's repulsive. It is personally disgusting. And it's disgusting to the Lord. So, uh, we have it here. It's going to come back in Proverbs 6.16. It's going to come back 19 more times in Proverbs. But where it's introduced is it's introduced in the uh, five uses that we find in Leviticus chapter 18. So let's take a look at those, Leviticus 18. So turn in your hate crime literature to Leviticus 18. And make sure you understand it. Make sure you know... um, because the other side, they hate this book, and they, they well, they hate the whole book, but um, they hate the, the particular places within the book that, that display their darkness. And um, they will try to throw it in your face, and they'll, they'll say, well, do you eat shrimp, or do you eat pork, or I saw you eating bacon, how dare you eat bacon and then preach against my homosexuality, okay? And what they try to do is they try to... They, they, they have this fallacy, but they, 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 and they think they're so logical with it. Uh, but they think that, well, because dietary components of Leviticus are no longer binding, all right, that because, because, because the New Testament has come and has, and has um, removed the dietary uh, requirements of Mosaic law for church observance, well, because of that, then just throw away Leviticus. There is no more Leviticus. And, and Leviticus is now expired. It's void. It's, uh, it, was, it was hate crime anyway, so we don't even want it anymore. And so if you eat bacon, then you have to march in the next gay pride parade or whatever it is, right? You've got you've to accept. You can't use Leviticus in any discussion on anything. Okay? That's the logic. So... Um, Anyway, if you want to take the time, I, to me it's pearls before swine, but if you take the time to say, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm not under law anyway, I'm not observing Leviticus for law purposes anyway, but in terms of what the scriptures reveal as what pleases God and what does not please God, what is right, what is wrong, what is morally reprehensible, what is, what is repulsive, what is it that sparks a revulsion in God's sensibilities? 
in God's sensibilities. Because we are creatures of sense. We are creatures of, and so is God. Right? Why is it that, that we, we smell and we taste and we see? And why do we have a capacity to identify sweet smells and nasty smells and great tastes and awful tastes and pretty things and ugly things? Well, that's awfully hateful of me, right? But it is. There, are, there, are, there is beauty and there is ugliness. Visually and, and tastefully and smellily and, and in, in all the senses, okay? In touch, right? There's things that feel soft and warm and nice and there's stuff that feels abrasive and rough and nasty. And, I mean, every one of our senses can, can subjectively now, subjectively, find things... Um, good and find things bad. Find things pretty and find things ugly. Find things pleasing and find things displeasing. And if something is so pleasing that I want to embrace it even more, okay, hmm, that was kind of nice. Let's do more of that. All right, that's how God designed it. And if there's something so repulsive that I don't want it anywhere near me, I don't want to look at it, think about it, hear about it, okay, that's how God designed it. And this is why in our culture, this is why we've, we've actually crossed several lines in recent generations and we have plunged into degrees of darkness that calls good evil and evil good and then turns it upside down and backwards and God says, whoa, whoa. And, and even humanity with a capacity to, you can, you can, you can create your own taste. You can, you can convince yourself that you like the way something tastes even though you used to think, man, that tasted nasty. But then later, you, you, you keep going back, keep going back, you keep, and you convince yourself, you convince yourself, you convince yourself. I think that's how sushi was invented. Anyway, you just convince yourself, convince yourself, hey, hey, this is pretty good, this is pretty good. All right. But now, you can, human beings have the capacity to derive physical pleasures in ways that God did not design. In ways that is not natural, is not human, and yet humanity has trained itself to do that. All of this, by the way, I think is a, is a, is a fascinating discourse. And, and I didn't know I was going to get philosophical this morning, but why did God not... I mean, He didn't have to create it this way, Right? But he planted every good tree that was good and for food and all the, the variety of why, why are bananas different from apples, different from pineapples, different from... Why all the different variety of flavors and tastes and why the different colors and why the different... The whole spectrum of color and the rainbow and all the different varieties of beauty and, and sounds. Why, why isn't everything just monotone? Why does he have all of the, the, the degrees of pitch and sound and tone and all the different... Uh, you know, the, the, the symphony of voices and sounds. He didn't have to design any of that. I think it's, it's capacity that he appreciates, that he has built into us for us to appreciate. You know, I mean... Anyway. Let's look at Leviticus 18. Um, 22, 26, 27, 29, 30... And actually, I could add to that because there's some cognate forms and some other terms in here as well. But um, 
It's pretty blunt. Uh, verse 22 says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. The male sex is designed to procreate with the female sex. And to uh, that's I mean, obvious. There it is. And uh, there's the male equipment, the female equipment. How blunt do you need to get? Proverbs get goes there. Proverbs gets blunt. And uh, be thankful for that. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal. That's going to be the next step in our societal degradation. And uh, they're already moving beyond the, the homosexual acceptance to the pedophilia acceptance. And uh, wouldn't surprise me if we're going to have animals next. Although that bumps heads with the animal rights crowd. That, they, 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 that might be left-on-left left violence on that. I don't, I'm not sure. Um, there's going to be some... Yeah. All right. Nor shall a woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Now, that's a cognate, that's a related form. A perversion. Um, we're not allowed to talk about perverts. There are no perverts. All right. How dare you call somebody perverted? Because in their view, you're perverted. They just turn it right back around. This is this is why we're living in this this uh, moral morally bankrupt day. Verse 24, do not defile yourself by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. Now, as I pointed out, we're not preaching about one sin and ignoring every other sin. We're not saying that one sin is worse than any other sin, but we have to acknowledge that there are certain sins that have additional consequences above and beyond what other sins don't have. And sexual sins have physical consequences. And homosexual sins have physical consequences and territorial consequences. And this also is above and beyond other consequences that all sin maintains. Yes, all sin. All of sin and falling short of the glory of God. Absolutely. Every sin puts you out of fellowship. Every sin, absolutely. But other sins, particular sins, will have physical consequences, and they will also have territorial consequences. And it's the homosexual range, of course, bestiality and incest and all the other things. Also, bloodshed. Bloodshed defiles the land. Innocent bloodshed defiles the land. And we live in a land of much innocent bloodshed. So the land has become defiled. The land has become defiled. Think of it as, you know, radioactive fallout after a nuclear explosion. How long does that last? Okay, well, think of it as uh, not radioactive, but um, homosexual active fallout. The actual defilement of a land. It has effects. And God sees it. Creation itself sees it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. This is such a deal that even if, maybe you've got an alien sojourning among you, and he's not a Jew, he's not under law, he's not expected to keep the law, you still demand that he respect these components of the law. And say, look, I know, you know, I realize you're a whatever and you're from out of town and while you're here, you abide by this law. Because if you defile this law, you're defiling our land. And so you are not permitted to do what you're doing. Not here. 
we will not have our land defiled. Okay? Or you might say, while you're under my house, while you're under my roof, you're not going to defile my roof, my house. Whatever you're doing out there, you're doing out there, and you're going to answer for that. But in my house, I am not going to have my house defiled. Explains again, for the men of the land, verse 27, who have been before you have done all these abominations. By the way, most of North America was defiled by the Native Americans. Their slavery, their cannibalism, their rape, their all the, the, uh, the homosexuality in the Western Hemisphere before Christianity arrived. Do you know why those nations were, uh, were removed by the hand of God in human history? Boy, I'm all kinds of politically incorrect this morning. Holy smokes. All right. Yeah, let's just continue to worship and celebrate Sacagawea. Do you know why they found her? Do you know how she'd been captured? Do you know the sex slave that she was? In the, uh, the different intertribal warfare and, and uh, different things. Anyway. Where am I? Oh, here we go. The, uh, so the land, verse 28... See, the nations before you, the men of the land who have been before you, the men of the land, I believe God holds the men accountable. The accountable party in marriage and family, in the laws of divine establishment. The land has become defiled. So the land will not spew you out should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. Remember, it's revulsive, repulsive. And uh, it just makes you want to vomit. You want nothing to do with it. So the land will not spew you out. What does he say in Revelation? I will spew you out of my mouth. That's the same concept for those lukewarm believers in Laodicea Bible Church. All right. For whoever does any of these abominations, whoever does any of these abominations, the whole emphasis is on the things you are doing. Those persons who do so shall be cut off from among the people. Thus you are to keep my charge. You do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced. How many, how many different terms do we need? Doing, practice. It's all about behavior. It's all about the things you do. It's, it's the nature of language. And again, we've lost the language. Satan has seized. He has usurped language and turned language on its head. There are, I mean, you, you end up with a derived term for something that is based upon activity you have done. You know, um, are, you, are you born a, a, a liar? Are you born a thief? Are you born a murderer? You can't become a murderer until you murder somebody. And then one, after you've murdered somebody, then you are a Murderer. If you've stolen, you are a thief. If you've, if you've, uh, any of these things, uh, you know, until you have farmed, you're not a farmer. Okay, it's the it's the er suffix on all these verbs. But uh, with the you don't have a you don't have a, a, a farming orientation. 
you were born with a farming orientation, and so you were just, you can't help it. You were born a farmer. And, <laughs> and so it was only inevitable that you had to go out and start farming because you were born with a farming or a murdering, you're a homicidal, you're, that's your homicidal orientation. No, you are a murderer when you murder somebody. All right? And when you want to stop murdering people, yeah. Anyway, so, um, did we get through all those? Yes, we got down through Proverbs or Leviticus 30. By the way, I thought it was interesting. There was some studies I was reading just last week. There are more ex-gays in the world today that is, those that have come out of that lifestyle and have repented and have become heterosexual, there are more ex-gays today than there are practicing, just statistically, numerically. And, uh, you know, you're not going to hear that in the news, but I find it, uh, in fact, just the opposite. They'll say, well, you can't change, you can't change, it's harmful. If you counsel somebody, then you're, you're abusing them. And it's, it's, uh, they're trying to shut down church ministries that offer uh, kind of counseling assistance to... Uh, come out of that slavery. They say, well, how dare you can't change a person. The truth is, people change every day. All right, Proverbs 3, 32. Uh, let's look at some non-homosexual stuff in, in uh, Proverbs 6, 16. More hate crime literature. There are six things which the Lord hates. Okay. So here's the thing. Again, we've lost language. They say any hate is wrong. Well, wait a minute. God hates. So if I have a different attitude than God, I'm wrong. I need to conform my attitude. And and hate is not the absence of love. Hate is a love application. Don't fall for that false dichotomy between love and hate. Hate is love. Your love for truth means you hate the lie. Your love for God means you hate idolatry. Six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to Him. Now here's a combination between hate and tolkneva, abomination. He hates it. He's repulsed by it. He wants to vomit it. He wants to drive it far from Him. Don't want to see it, hear it, smell it. None of it. And you'll note, some of these hit the goody tushus people in, in church. Okay? These aren't, these aren't bad, you know, murderers and drunks and, and, and fornicators and, and homosexuals and, you know, this long list of stuff we, in the Romans 1 crowd we want to look down on. No, it's the Romans 2 crowd. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Oh, I do find it remarkable Let's look, okay, let's, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, someone comes around twice, the falsehoods, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Now fundamentally, we get to that seventh one, and that's the one that's really being emphasized in this text. Anytime that Hebrew poetry uses X and X plus one, then the emphasis is to be on the X plus one, is to be on the final one. So if it's six and then seven, or if it's two and then three, or if it's three and then four, whatever it is, um, and there's several different variations of this in the Old Testament, but if it's X and X plus one as a, as a, as a formula, 
In this case, it's six and seven. It might be two and three. Uh, it might be three and four. Okay. Then any time in Hebrew poetry, when you have that as a feature of the of the literature, then the we're not saying that those first six aren't important, but what we're saying is the really big one that the the, the point of emphasis is that final one. It's that it's that it's the one that breaks the camp, camel's back, as it were. It's the one that really carries the punch in the in the emphasis of a text. So in this case, it's strife among brothers, one who spreads strife among brothers. So six that the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. That seventh one is, is the worst of them all. They're all bad. They're all bad. He hates them all. This is like his hall of fame as far as his attitude is re- with respect to these particular sins, with respect to his abominations. Somebody, the, um, who was I reading? I can't remember. They were trying to, again, throw out Leviticus out of the Bible and claim, well, because homosexuality isn't in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, then it's okay. And, uh, and we can, again, we can remove Leviticus and, and we're good. And, and we can fill our churches with, uh, with all of this because it's not in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Well, let's see, here's a, here's a, here's a thing. And, and this mindset, this lifestyle... And I don't know that there's anything comparable in our day and age. Is there anything comparable with any other sin out there? You know, let's say you've got a, um, oh, maybe maybe you've got an anger issue, okay? Maybe you've got a, a, a temperament that you, you when you go carnal, you, you blow your stack and whatever. Okay, so you've got, a, you've got an anger issue. I don't see anger pride parades. I don't see anger... Uh, reinforcement support groups. I don't see I don't see magazines and literature that are targeted towards angry people. All right? I don't see Okay, you see what I'm saying? There's a mindset that that forms what I believe is an enslaving philosophy that just the mind just gets absorbed into an entire way of thinking. And that way of thinking in large respect is described by what we just read. Haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. What other sin sparks the haughty eyes like that? Where we just say, hey, this is my, this is my sin. How dare you call it a sin? I'm proud of what I'm doing. Where's the anger pride movement? Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. All the, think about all the delusions that go into this. Well, I was born this way. Well, I can't help it. Or, well, all the lies that are told. Hands that shed innocent blood. You know how physically damaging that lifestyle is. Destructive. Deadly. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. False witness who utters lies. And one who spreads strife among the brothers. I think that whole lifestyle, as it's practiced in our culture today, is encapsulated by all seven of those items in Proverbs chapter 6, 16 through 19. Anyway, somebody should write a book. (laughs) I'm not a writer. 19 more times in the book of Proverbs, so stay tuned. The Proverbs are going to talk a lot about the Tokneva, going to talk a lot about the abomination. Now, 
the contrast is with the personal counsel, the inner circle. This is the antithesis. And the Hebrew term for this is sowed. Okay, that's a samek, not a scene. Samek. C-O-W-D, sowed. Number 5475, there are 21 uses throughout the Old Testament. And uh, here's just a sampling of them. I think these will be useful. Psalm 5514. Because so, this, is, this is the positive. This is what God wants us to embrace. So Psalm 5514. When uh, David was betrayed, the reason why it hurt so much was because of who it was that betrayed him. And I can expect that that hurt was first felt by Ahithophel. When, uh, when David and Ahithophel's granddaughter Bathsheba committed their adultery and murdered Uriah, I believe Ahithophel likewise felt betrayed and felt hurt by his king. But in Psalm 55, 12, David says, It is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. You know, if it was a Philistine or an enemy or somebody, all right. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. This is our term here. This is our sowed my companion and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. This sweet fellowship in verse 14. This is the counsel, the the intimacy that we had. Walked in the house of God in the throng. Of course, now it's broken. Now the fellowship is gone. The intimacy is destroyed. And David destroyed it first with the betrayal of, of uh, Uriah. And then Ahithophel betrayed it when he usurped the throne and, and supported Absalom in the, the coup against the throne of David. That's why it hurts so much. Over to Psalm 89. Another use of sowed. Psalm 89.7. One of the great angelic passages if when you study angelology. Verse 5 says, The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty? The B'nai El, the sons of the mighty, is like the Lord. Not the, not the liar who said he would be like the Most High God, certainly. The answer is nobody. There is one and only one and there is none like him. A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. This is the sowed of the Kedoshim, the holy ones. And awesome above all those who are around him. Remember I told you I want to stop misusing awesome. It's overused, it's abused. We should limit awesome to something describing Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. He is the one that we should be in awe, in reverence. I don't care how exciting the thrilling finish was in the basketball game. It was not awesome. Let's limit awesome to our fear of the Lord and attribute it only to the Lord God. O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. Who is like you? Nobody. The lies of Satan and his five-eye wills 
notwithstanding. Okay. Um, Proverbs 3.32, that's our passage today. Jeremiah 23.18 and 22. Jeremiah 23, 18 and 22. Now, in this context, in Jeremiah 23, we have false prophets that Jeremiah had to deal with. Jeremiah was a lone voice. You know, with with Daniel and Ezekiel safely off in Babylon, who was left behind in Jerusalem? Uh, But Jeremiah and a bunch of false prophets, okay? And uh, so we have this woe message. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. And these false prophets, these liars. And um, the Lord says his heart is broken in verse 9. And uh, actually, Jeremiah says his heart was broken in verse 9. And uh, I don't want to read the whole chapter here, but you'll note what a lonely ministry. <laughs> Uh, in verse 14, Jeremiah says, Also among the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing, the committing of adultery, walking in falsehood. They strengthen the hand of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. In other words, repulsive, abomination. I want nothing to do with them. And uh, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning those false prophets, Behold, I'm going to feed them wormwood, make them drink poisonous water. Why do you think wormwood is featured in the tribulation in the book of Revelation? All right. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, pollution has gone forth into all the land. Do you think we're talking about factories and industrial output into the creeks and streams? No. We're not talking about anything that Greenpeace is going to protest. No. We're talking about the spiritual pollution from fornication. The defilement of the land. And using the religious leaders to validate what you're doing. Oh, it's okay. And the religious leaders, the false prophets or the megachurch pastors or the televangelists and whatever, they're, uh, they're sanctioning all this wickedness because they're taking part in it too. All right. So thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, not so. The Lord has said, you will have peace. You know, there's old stupid Jeremiah over there saying captivity for 70 years. And all these false prophets saying, oh, no, 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 no. Peace, 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 peace and safety. God's going to destroy the yoke of Babylon. We're free. We're great. Hmm. And so those, they keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. As for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say calamity will not come upon you. Notice now, verse 18. But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? A true prophet, a true pastor, a true Bible preacher, when he does stand and says, thus saith the Lord is doing so because he himself is intimate with Jesus Christ. He himself stands in the counsel of the Lord. He himself is declaring the utterances of God. Who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? 
The reason why Jeremiah was brave enough to say all the things he was saying? Because he knew it was true. He was intimate with the Lord. All right. Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath, verse 19. Even a whirling tempest, it will swirl down on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. In the last days, you will clearly understand it. I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. I tell you, every ministry that winks at sin, that excuses what the Bible condemns, is just like these false prophets of Jeremiah's day. And they're going to answer for it. The anger of the Lord will not turn back. Our land is being polluted. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. Okay, well, it goes on. I'll get lost in that. And we're gonna, we have Jeremiah coming up, and I'm, I'm loving it. So we'll see what uh, the Lord gives us when we get through with Isaiah and move on to, uh, to Jeremiah. All right, we have three more fundamental contrasts. Uh, point B. Wow. Oh, okay. That's kind of cute. Not sure why I did that. All right. B, C, and D. We have three more fundamental contrasts. And I think these, we're going to cover these now. Oh, I know why I did that. This was the old slide. Okay. Well, then, this is what we're going to do next week. Next week, we're going to do B, C, and D. And we will flesh it out fuller than that. Um, fundamental contrast. The house of the wicked and the dwelling of the righteous. Where do you dwell? Where do you dwell? And for a church-age believer, where we understand that dwelling in the Word of God is the requirement for being a disciple, where do you dwell? Do you dwell in the house of the Lord? Are you occupying the synagogue of Satan that Revelation warns us about? The house of the wicked. The house of the wicked or the dwelling of the righteous? Well, where do you live? Where do you dwell? Where do you spend the bulk of your time? See, (laughs) you know, there's some men that, you know, they they basically, they they live at work. Work is their life. The amount of time they spend there versus the amount of time they spend at home. It's pretty clear where they live. Or how the amount of time uh, they spend in uh, in, uh, sports or the amount of time they spend in Scripture. And they can spend uh, they can spend 100 hours a week uh, scouring uh, the the, uh, the the sports statistics or whatever. One hour every two or three months on uh, on on a Bible verse maybe. No, where do they live? Where do they live? We'll talk about where we live, the idea of where we dwell, the fundamental contrast between the proud and the humble. God is opposed to the proud; He gives grace to the humble. And we're used to that in James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5. It comes out of Proverbs three thirty four, where not only is he opposed to the proud, but he actually scoffs at the scoffers. He treats them in accordance with their own attitude. And it's not, uh, it's not pleasant. And then the wise and the fool, which really forms the basis for all of Proverbs, the wise and the fool. 
So that's where we'll pick it up next week. Lord willing and rapture pending. Remember, next week is our final week uh, with a two-week break after that because of uh, the Ukraine trip. So come back uh, next week, and we will wrap up B, C, and D and uh, try to tie together chapter 3 before before our two-week break. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time today. Thank you for being gracious. And Father, uh, I've seen the passages here and the realities. And Father, we've got friends and loved ones and folks that we know are enslaved by some of the sin patterns we've talked about here today. And Father, in, in none of these cases are we arrogant or proud or are we condemning. Father, All we're, we're just weeping. Our hearts are broken. And Father, we would love to see repentance and restoration to fellowship and a return to a uh, not just a, the conduct of the life, but the, the heart, the mind, Father, that has stayed on Thee. And I pray, Father, that, that uh, in every case, in every case, that we would be um, in a, an effective testimony, that we ourselves would not damage our testimony, that we ourselves would not embrace what we are to uh, find repulsive, that we would not um, find fellowship in that which we are is supposed to make us vomit, that uh, the, the clarity of abomination versus intimacy might uh, orient each one of us into what it is, Father. And it's not... It's not uh, personal it's spiritual and i pray that we might be able to effectively and lovingly communicate such truth so be faithful and be merciful father and i do thank you in christ jesus name amen